They put it in the bathroom to disperse the smell of the bathroom. Okay, to, to counteract. Anyway. Someone said it's not... The famous... Famous... Chesidisha uh, story. Sfardim start... Start... Chesidisha story... Tomorrow morning. Chesidisha story... Of... The Misnag... The Misnag and this Chesidish uh, Baruch came into this Snagish Yeshiva. It's right before. That's for me. Get over here. Thank you, Mira. Can, no, it's mine. Thank you. Thank you, Mira. And he heard. He heard in the hallways and the stairwells. All of a sudden, he hears this this screech that was hair raising. It was the hair in the back of his neck stood up. This guy screamed, "Hello!" Yeah, he was getting inspired. Now, Terebbe tells us that although the days of El are days of repentance and days that lead up to Rosh Hashanah and days that we have to repent for the past year and we have to reflect. Hey, Mira, I have something for you. Mira. Mira. I like talking to you. Come here. She's putting it back in the bag. <laughs> Doesn't have to. We'll finish it. <laughs> the Alter explains that Chaydish El is Melech Basada. The king is in the field. In the field, the king will be. Yeah. In the field. There you go. The king is in the field. The and the king is accepting and seeing everyone the king is welcoming everybody with no discretion no saying, no turning no, no oh my gosh no appointments besides the no appointments he doesn't, doesn't say this one is more important no discrimination no Discrimination is almost the word. Uh, Nat is really in trouble. Hmm. He said he's coming. Nat had a granddaughter. Nat had an anacle. He had a little granddaughter. She wanted a green? Sorry. I sacrificed my red one. He had a granddaughter yesterday, so in Lakewood. So, in Mietza Hashem. He's coming up from Lakewood now with the rest of the grandchildren from his son, and he's going to be looking after the children while the mother's in hospital. So he said, perhaps, perhaps, this is going to be up here in Brooklyn, perhaps he'll grace us with his presence. Chayi takes on a whole new meaning. For the past 29 years, as of this Friday, in my own personal life, Chaydeshel was a very happy moment as we got married in Gimel El. So now we are celebrating that 29 years. Very, very short, man. Yeah, listen. Amen. And um, when my wife was questioned, my wife was questioned by the doctor about her good health status, Baruch Hashem. So the doctor, so she told the doctor that when we got married, we made a pact that if case ever started any kind of fight ever started between us, one of us would walk outside. But fight, better than the fight should develop and turn into something, one of us just walks outside. So my wife is breathing fresh air for 29 years. She says she stayed very healthy. Right. She's been breathing 29 years fresh air, so she's staying very healthy. Um. Unfortunately, it took on a new dimension now, whereas the Gimelel was followed by Daladel, and Daladel, this year, is going to see the first yard site of my father, Oliver Shalom. Now, my father actually was very unceremonious, an unceremonious person. 
ही born in Poland sons and experienced enough from the war to be properly scarred when he got here my grandfather his father was a chazan and a sheikhit as was my father but being my grandfather's a chazan and a sheikhit in those days it was quite a commodity he was a chazan of a town called Zagush and was the sheikhit and the sheikhit in those days unlike today's day and age where they get paid the weekly salary this salary was paid per animal and you needed the animal and the animal fed the town for the three, four, five days and the sheikh sometimes had to do two or three animals a week and this was a costly expense for the people but sheikh made a very, very nice living as Chazan Zagash was not a small town it was big enough to have a Chazan that needed a 40 person choir my grandfather Shalom would write the music for the four voices and he would have his choir come in the living room and they would sit, they would practice and people would gather around on the outside of the house to listen just to the choir practicing. Reminiscent to the only reason I know that story is because when we got, when I was ultimately here in Brooklyn the custom of the family was that my father, his brothers and his sisters would make the Seder at home on Pesach until benching. After benching, everybody packed up for the last two cups, the last cup, they would go to my grandparents' house. Some used to have the Seder there ready to the but most everybody had their own Sadarim and came only for Halal and Nirza. They're from Polish descent, so they do Nirza as well. The house was, Baruch Hashem, very full, Kanahara. So no matter what the weather was, no matter how Pesach came out, the windows had to be opened. And the windows were open. And it, interestingly, it got very stuffy in everyone's house on the whole block. Because you'd look outside, you see all the windows on the whole block would be open. Because everybody wanted to hear Halal and Itzah from the Hecht house. It was quite, quite an experience. It was quite a, a lot of the songs were songs that my grandfather Shalom wrote, composed to the Haggadah and with his sons being Chazanim, and him himself a Chazan, and the grandchildren used to sit and croak behind. It was quite, an ex- quite a beautiful sight. The ta- they, in Zagush, they had the only house that had running hot and cold water in the house. The rest of the house was, the rest of the, the, the shtetl was with outhouses and whatever other forms of fashions of water. Yimachshimam v'zakram, when the Nazis took over this area, this was the headquarters that they made. They made a headquarters out of that house. My grandmother, my father's mother, had this intuition, shall we call it. She always stayed a step ahead of the Germans. She was blessed with that, Baruch Hashem. And this is why, except for barring one son... She brought all her children to America. One son was in Ely. Before the war? No, after the war. After the war, wow. One son was in Ely. And he was such a genius that the Stott Malamed, the Malamed in town, couldn't keep up with him. So as a child, they had to send him away to Yeshiva. They couldn't keep him in the town. They had no one to teach him. And that yeshiva was rounded up and, dis- and killed by the, by the Germans. So there was a one person that came and notified my grandparents of the death of my father's oldest brother, my uncle Leibish. Right, that's where he gets the name. So as unassuming as my father was, there were many little nuances in my father's life that he did that he kept up with and stayed on top of 
that was always a lesson to us. <laughs> Didn't help much in Shalom Bayes, but it helped in, in bringing us up. My father never woke us up. You got up by yourself? Um, we had to get up our own. We had to wake up on our own. He didn't wake us up. I was the older boy. I had two older sisters and he didn't have to deal with that for sure. But as the oldest boy, my father being a sheikh during the week and a chazan on Shabbos, the only way that I would merit to spend time with my father is if I got up in the morning and went with him on Shabbos. And this wasn't easy. Because he had stellas in different strange places. One stella was in the Kingsway Jewish Center. One was in Oceanview Jewish Center. And living in Borough Park, he had to make it by foot. So the Oceanview Jewish Center in Brighton Beach was an hour and a half each way. An hour and a half each way, and he stood the whole evening by the helmet. Now, mind you, this was not his sole panasa. As a matter of fact, this is a pittance towards his panasa. His main panasa, he worked, worked all day, all week, on his feet. So when push came to shove, this man stood seven days a week on his feet. Never, ever complained. Never told us, it's too hard for me. Never said, hard work can hurt you. He always was doing Machaya in that way. Teaching us how to behave, how to live, how to act. And it was something that we will always take with us. To the last minute, when everything else is shutting down, my father's heart was pumping. And this was something that showed us and told us that he had a heart to do things, whether it be in his shkita, whether it be in his chazanis, whatever it was, his heart was fully devoted. Are you supposed to be listening to that phone call? I don't think so. So it's apropos to tell me to tell us Shaftim Vishaitim Titanacha Bakal Sharaka The lesson that we have from this Parsha is the Shaftim and the Shaitrim that one has to do titen l'cha. One has to not just take in his town and have judges and police, but doesn't say shevtim v'shevtim titen l'chem, titnu l'chem, but rather shevtim v'shevtim titen l'cha. Each and every person has to have his own police force, his own judicial system, Amongst the spiritual moments that I merited in my life, I started it when I was eight days old. My sandik was the Blue Jivadeva. So my father was ultimately um, his private shaykhid. The Blue Jivadeva was the Skanad Maidim in America, he was the oldest Rebbe in America. Blue Rebbe was the famous story of the Blue Rebbe. The famous story of the Blue Rebbe. Erevim Kippur once, he told my father, after Kaparas, you're going tomorrow to the Babacha Rebbe. He knew my father was the Babacha Chassid. You're going tomorrow to take Lakach. Please mention my name by the Rebbe. Yisrael ben Tzapayra. I didn't say Admar. Yisrael ben Tzapayra. 
And he said to my father, he'll know who it is already. Anyway, my father was not a shy person by any means. He performed in concerts with three, four, five thousand people. Um, his last proper stella in a shul was in Barrenhurst Synagogues in Memphis, Tennessee, which seats two and a half thousand. And also had a 40 person choir. So he was shy, by, by no means shy. But when he came in front of the Rebbe, that, that was gone. And he came in front of the Rebbe, and it's Lekach, and Lekach, the Rebbe didn't stop. Shonatev Masukha, Shonatev Masukha, the Rebbe barely look up. Came in front of the Rebbe, Blue Rebbe said to ask, how could he refuse him? So he gets in front of the Rebbe, and he froze. He melted, he froze, whatever he did, he could not remember the name for life. What do you do? How could he not do it? But he stopped. And usually the people just kept moving. They never saw some, this person stopped. They never looked at him a second. And in that split second, my father said, The blues of Rebbe asked for bracha. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe looked at my father. I don't know if the Rebbe actually smiled. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe told my father, Yisrael ben Tzipayda. The Rebbe told my father to wait a minute. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe took a silk handkerchief from his desk. He put several pieces of lekach into it. He started to wrap it and unwrap it, open it and close it. And as he wrapped and unwrapped it, the Rebbe was repeating different types of brachas. Zikna tuva, over and over and over. Then the Rebbe told my father, I know you're very busy. Arab Kippa Chazan is very, very busy. But you should see to get this to him before Yom Tov. Now those days, those who remember the line, right. used to go down till East till till Brooklyn Avenue. Right. But he very, went very fast. You'd go in through what's now Rabbi Groner's office. The middle, where the Rebbe's car ultimately used to come into. But those days, they were still straight. And now they made it into a driveway eight later years. Right. I mean, you'd walk into this, the room, uh, to, the, to the door, and you come up into Ganeidin Atach, and go past the Rebbe's room, and go back out the front door. What would you do? You can't go, you tell us to Peklach. You'd put your stuff in the gr- in the yard in the front on the grass, and you'd go through, get your whatever the lekach, and then come back out again and pick it up. The Rebbe told my father, "You should see to get this there before you." Until my father got so tzerashed, he forgot his talis and tulum on the grass. He ran to his car, and he ran to bring the lekach to the blushev. Now the blushev is on 58th Street. For those who want to go see what it looks like, 58th between 14 and 15. And when you come into the building, it's a house. To your left is the entrance to the shul. Right in front of you is the stairwell. To your right was the Rebbe's private room. Who's your Rebbe's room? So the stairwell that went up, went up into the apartment, went into the kitchen actually, upstairs. Mm-hmm. Through the house, through the apartment upstairs, there was another room, another door into the kitchen. My father went into the shul, came into the building, walked up the stairs to go to the kitchen. And the Rebbe was standing in the kitchen. She heard somebody coming up. She said, Vegate, who's going? She said, Ich, Moshe. So she said, probably you brought something from the Rebbe. Not from the Lubavitcher, but probably you brought something from the Rebbe. My father was shocked. How did you know? So she said that he wouldn't, he's been refusing to eat all day. As soon as I heard you on the steps, my grandson walked into the kitchen to tell me he wants to eat now. After Yom Kippur, she called my father to say that the blizzard washed, ate a kezayah's challah, bite of fish, a bite of the chicken or the meat, whatever it was, and the Rebbe's like, that's what he fasted on. The blizzard was the grandson of the Bnei Yisaskha, the holy Bnei Yisaskha. 
which we're soon going to talk about because that's where the parish of Shaftim, the most, the statement of Shaftim which the Rebbe brings down, which is most pertinent to the parish of Shaftim, is quoted from the Bnei Yisachar. The famous story with his Zayda, the Bnei Yisachar, is documented in this book called The Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, which, and this particular story I heard from the Blue himself. During the day in, in the Lage, in the concentration camps, the Germans had very, very interesting jobs for people to do. Now, it's known psychologically when you do a job, you step back afterwards to look at the job you've done. A job well done. It doesn't matter what field you're in. If you take a student, you take a, a child, and you develop them, and you take a child, and the child had a problem, and you worked with the child for six months, for eight months, and the child now has overcome the problem, or, or, or if it's a building that has to go up, and you, you've stepped back afterwards to admire your work. This is all, of course, if there's a result to your job. The Germans gave heavy labor with no purpose. There were those that had to build railroad tracks. Most of them did not know what part they were doing and how it came into place and what a railroad track was even. They had to schlep steel. They had to schlep, they had to cut the wood. They had to, but nobody knew what they were actually, and except for the actual worker that was doing the track, laying the tracks. And there was also the custom that when they had nothing for them to do, they made them dig ditches. Dig a ditch. And it was one such day that they had stood in the blazing heat and they were digging a ditch. Now you also, digging this ditch, used to use, they used to never stipulate. It's interesting, I met um, my grandmother's third cousin. I met his son in the airport last week. Comes over to me with another fellow and he says, hey. he looks at me, he says, he doesn't even know who I am. So I called him by his name, I gave him a hug and a kiss. He says, how can I not know you? He was shocked that I actually... He told me a, f- a story of his father. He says, your grandmother, he says to me, was always, like I said before, was always a step ahead. She never got into the mix of the pro- main, main crux of the problems. Her brothers died, this one died, that one died. She had at one point in time, her brother was in the next town and he ended up dying of hunger. She didn't know he was there. But anyway, he says, she was always on the run. His father, Oliver Shalom, was already gone a few years, had found a ditch that they had managed to dig up, and they dug and they had a well going underneath, and whatever they had, and he used to spend the day in, the well, in this ditch. And at night, somebody would go out and try to get some food. In Last night, actually, the Sefer that was dedicated was dedicated in the memory of Aaron Wolf, who was a Holocaust survivor. But a very st- strong Holocaust survivor that used to speak out anytime he had a Galegna. He was the president of his father's Yeshua on, on 14th Avenue. Whenever he had his Damnut, any kind of occasion to speak, he spoke about the six million, he spoke about the pains and the trials and tribulations. Why did very he powerful. With a very low voice. Lower, later maybe, but in the old days he used to scream, he used to have a sing song that he used to talk in. Anyway, when we were walking out of the house with the Sefer I turned to the rabbi of his father, Shashul, and I said, Ah, this is called Nekama. This is revenge against Hitler. Machshemei So Rabbi Kaufman told me, No, it's a Nekama. For the family to have the Sefer to know that they're carrying on the tradition. <laughs> the man's name, the Nifta's name was Aaron. So by the Suda, I have to go to the Suda because I'm very close to the family. So I, I, the only way I was allowed to be there was I had to work. So I was the MC. So walking out of the house when Rabbi Kaufman told me this that it's Nechama not a Nechama and I thought of it as a Nechama 
I didn't know that, I didn't remember that I had to speak in, in the hall even. But I brainstormed, shall we say it. And it flashed in front of my eyes. When we talk about Aaron in the Torah, one of the most famous incidents that takes place with Aaron is the Mata Aaron, the stick, the staff that blossoms. And turns to almonds. A dead piece of wood that blossomed and turned to almonds. And ultimately God tells Moshe, take that staff and talk to the stone. Take that staff. Now, take that staff and you should talk to the stone. should be literally means take the staff and let the staff talk to the stone. What's going on here? Are we dealing ventriloquists? What, 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 is, what was Moshe supposed to be doing here? So the Chazal tell us that no, the Mata had a message. The staff had a message. I am a dead piece of wood, but in order to be Mekadashem Shemayim, in order to sanctify God's name, I blossomed. They told me to do something that will make God's name glorified, I blossomed. Totally against my nature. Therefore, I'm telling you, rock, stone, it's not your nature for water to come out of you. Now you do yours. I did mine, you do yours. Kach is spelled kufches. Nikoma is nun kuf memhei. Nikoma is nun ches memhei. So the interchanging is the letters of kuf and ches, kach. And kach is referring to the concept of Aaron. So that that was ultimately what brainstormed as the evening trans, uh, transformed. But going back to the Bnei Yisachar, well, going back to the Bnei Yisachar, the Blushev was digging a pit all night long, mm-hmm. all day long. In the middle of the night, they were woken up and they were brought to the pit. And they were told, jump over the pit. If you get to the other side, you live for another day. If you don't, you fall in, we shoot you. Now, this cousin of my grandmother told me, his father used to, if you told him that in uh, 60 years down the line, they're going to make a safe dedicated in your name, wouldn't believe such a thing. But he says his father didn't even dream of such things. If you, his father was excited if someone guaranteed him, tomorrow morning you're going to say Maidani. If he was told the next morning he'll be able to say Maidani, he would have been ecstatic. Even that couldn't be guaranteed to him. Never mind 60 years from now what a generation is going to look like. Here they were told, line up in front of the ditch. There was an antagonist. There was a uh, apicarius actually. That was in the same concentration camp as the Blizzard. And he used to mock the Blizzard. He used to tell him constantly, Spira, look, you were a big rabbi. Thousands of Siddim. And I never put on tool in my life, never ate kosher, never kept Shabbos, never yumptiv. We're in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Side by side. Where's your God? Spira. At this point, at this juncture, they had to jump over the ditch. And the Apicarius turned to the Blizzard and told him, Spira, don't be foolish. They want to entertain themselves. You're going to try to jump over this ditch. It's not humanly possible. We haven't eaten properly in weeks and months. We're practically skin and bones. What are we jumping over ditches? The Blizzard told him it doesn't happen. If there's a possibility in any which way that a Jew can save his own life, even with the sword dangling over his neck, the person has to do so. And the Blushiva got to, to the ditch, to his turn to jump, he closed his eyes and said, we're jumping. And he opened his eyes, he was on the other side of the ditch. Shasmaisa, he looks to his right, and there was the, the Apicarius standing next to him. <laughs> so Apicarius said, Spira, how did you get over the ditch? He says, I said we're jumping and my Zayda Bnei Yisoscha came down from Ganeid and let down his kaftan. 
this coat. And I grabbed on the corner and he pulled me over to the other side. How did you get over Apicatus, he says to him. He says, I was holding on to you. As much as he mocked him and didn't believe and didn't believe a non-believer, he was holding on to the delusion. He knew that's what you hold on to. That's the source. Which is also very, very strong, the theme of Pasha Sheftim. And it was in the Pasha Sheftim, Tavshin and Aleph, that the Rebbe said, Yesh Nasi Bi Yisrael. There is a Nasi amongst the Eden. And ultimately, of course, referring to the Rebbe. And the Nasi is not considered Reish B'nei Yisrael, and Nasi is considered Leiv. Not the concept of Mayach of head, but Leiv, the heart of the Jewish nation. And the many connotations which are brought about by, these things, by this concept. But in the Sefer B'nai Yisrael, in the beginning, he writes, Elul is always read in Pasha Shaftim. Because this is the beginning of Tshuva. And the main thing is that the Balchuva is obligated, he says, to appoint upon himself a shafit and a shaitir, a judge and a policeman. Where? Every one of his gates. What gates does a person have? Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and a mouth. And the person has to see to it that they know that they judge and they watch and they are careful with what goes in and out of all these gates. And the shaitar takes and pulls through and completes the ultimate punishment that a person is obligated to suffer for if not keeping the way they're supposed to. If the eyes looked, if the mouth spoke, if the nostrils smelled or the ears heard something, they shouldn't. And the person, therefore, has to take upon themselves, however the tshuva might be, in tzedakah, or even if it gets as far as tainus fasting. And there are those, believe it or not, even today's day and age, that will take on, for Lashon Hara, a fast. It was a chosid. I mean, they came to the Rebbe, and said to the Rebbe, this is this freedom of choice. I can smell what I want to smell, I can eat what I want to eat. Mm-hmm. I can even say what I want and don't want to say. Mm-hmm. What about the heart? How do I let into my heart only things? How do I screen mm-hmm. the heart to remain pure? And I never said for this you have to go to my chosid Rebzev. Now this is the Ukraine. Back in the beginning of the century, 1900s. And the travel mode was not Excel Express. Going on chill or after? What was that? <laughs> Talking about the Fidic Road, right? Yeah. And in order you to went get to jail there, or after? You no, before. The Scots had to walk through Ukrainian forests in the middle of a bitter, bitter cold winter. They traveled and traveled a day, the day and a half. It was well after midnight when he arrived in the town of Rebzev. As he arrived in the town of Rebzev, he was fortunate, although it was well after midnight, to see the sole light lit in the house, in the town, was that of Rebzev's house. He saw this, and he was happy to go over, to approach, and he looks through the shutters, and Abzev is sitting, pouring over a safer. He knocks on the window. Nothing. A little hotter. Nothing. Getting cold. Until now he was moving, blood was flowing. He's standing still in this bitter, below zero temperature. <clears throat> the Ar- Arctic freezing. He knocks harder. His legs are starting to go numb. He goes to the door and he's banging. He must have been there two, three hours. He was getting close to the sunrise. Observe, opened the door. <clears throat> Cordially welcomed him in. Brought him in quickly near the fire. 
gave him a nice cup of tea, gave him towels for his legs, <coughs> set him up in the nicest room in the house, you can well imagine the mansions they lived in. And was a man- magnificent host. Magnificent. He was looking after and taking care of and It was wonderful. A day, two, three, and the, uh, the guest was a proper, was the uh, ideal guest as well. So the guest and host were doing wonderfully together. And then finally, after four days, the guest revealed why he was here. The Rebbe asked me to come to you. And he explained to him his dilemma. How do we keep out of the heart what we want out of our hearts? And Abzev said to him, Your heart is your home. Your answer was given to you the first night you arrived. You wanted to come into my house. I didn't want to let you in. It's my house. Until I didn't open the door to you, you weren't coming into my house. I was master and in control of who comes in and out of my house. And therefore, I gave you your answer that first night. Until I didn't want to let you in, you didn't come in. And the same, to, the same is also with the heart. As long as you don't open, you're not getting in. That a person has to bring upon themselves a level. A person has to bring themselves up to a level, to a standard in life. I guess it's a muscle. The story was told of two very close friends that grew up together and their friendship really was magnificent, inseparable. Ultimately they married. One married a boy, a girl in Rome, one married a girl in Syria. And although they parted ways, they still remained, friendship was always steadfast. Ba'ayim and the fellow from Syria came to visit Rome. And as he entered the country, he was arrested as a spy. Come what may, argue what you want. They said he was a spy. And the punishment to the spy was death. What will happen? He turned to the prosecutors and he said to them, do me one favor. I'm not from here even. Just allow me time to go home and say goodbye to my family. said, okay. They went to the emperor, we'll, we'll put your request to the emperor. And they came to the emperor, and the emperor said, well, am I crazy? I'll let you out of here, and I'll see you again. He says, listen, I have a friend here. My friend here in Syria, in Rome, will vouch for me. So what does he mean, he'll vouch for you? Let's ask him. And they called a friend over, and they tell the friend the story that this man is due to be put to death. However, he wants to go back to Rome to say goodbye to his family. Syria. The Syrian was arrested in Rome. He wants to go back to Syria. Thank you. How are you willing to be collateral? He said, I'll tell you the truth. I'll sit in jail in his stead. And we'll wait till he comes back. The emperor was no fool, and he said, you're going to sit in jail? You're going to do more than that. I'm giving you two weeks to go back home, say your goodbyes, and be back here. If you're not back here by the dawn of the second week, this other fellow dies in your stead. They asked the man, are you willing to be such a collateral? He said, 100%. And his fellow, his friend goes off to Syria to say goodbye to his family. And he said all of his tearful goodbyes and set sail to go back to Rome. But to set sail, you have to have wind for sail. And although he did it with due time and there should have been plenty of time to get back and forth, 
there was no wind. And the lack of wind delayed the journey. And the journey was delayed to such an extent that he showed up after dawn. The tradition was, though, the day that someone was executed, especially a spy, there was a party. And therefore the party took place first, and the ceremonies, and the show everybody, this is what we do to this is what we do to a person. So the ceremonies are taking place, and the fellow shows up from Syria, and he says, here I am. I'm the one that's supposed to be killed. And he comes before the emperor, your majesty, I'm back. Interestingly, the friend in Rome said, too late, you came after dawn, I have to die in your stead. They started to scream, this is ludicrous. I'm here on the on the right day. Today, you're not dead yet. If you're not dead yet, I, could die. I have to die. I was the one accused of being a spy. And he said, it's not happening. You came late. The decree was, if you be here by dawn, or if you're not here by dawn, I'm dying. And they're going to kill me and not you. And this argument started to get louder and louder. And this is happening in front of the emperor. And the emperor finally says, stop. And he calls them both over. And he says to them, Neither of you are dying. But on condition. Condition is that I'm the third friend to this partnership. The strong love and friendship between these two awakens such a chukka, such a yearning by the emperor that he said the only way that I could survive in this world is if you people allow me to be part of your friendship. There are many, many things that we talk about in this parasha. Ki adam eitzasada, tam tiyem Hashem alikecha. The end of the parasha, we learn the halacha of Egla Rufa. The halacha of Egla Rufa is that they found a, found a person dead, and nobody knows who killed him. The elders of the cities are come out and they measure to where the corpse is lying closest. And by that city then has to bring a sacrifice. Many things that are involved here. Is it because they are saying that it was your culpability, you didn't feed him properly, you didn't look after him, he had to leave the town. Whatever the reason, the person had died. But interestingly... If we read the Psukim prior to the story, to the parish of Egla Rufa, it talks about war. And we read the next parsha is Kisei again war. Why would the parsha of Egla Rufa be enveloped in between two parts of the Torah that talk about war? And the answer, unfortunately, is very simple. Generally, the world traditionally is known that man eats man. Each to his own, and everyone tries to get their own and tries to advance their own way. If it means stepping on somebody else and standing on the ladder, they do so. There are no scruples when it comes to survival. And there were times that people turned on others unlike in our story with the two friends, because it was all about survival. However, during wartime, people become very crass. People become very, very inhumane. Blood is free. Life is free. Another one gets killed, so another one got killed. Another casualty of war. And people don't have a backward glance. They don't make a backward glance about another casualty of the war. Why was that innocent civilian killed? Because it's war. In this war, he happened to be there. In the wrong place, at the wrong time. 
there's a Schwarz comedian that was looking for a routine. He went to a high security prison and decided to interview the prisoners. Realized, of course, that high security prisons because they're a bunch of Mishagayim. So he came and he sees the docket of this fellow that he's about to interview. The guy is in jail for 19 counts of murder. And it didn't happen over a span of any time. It happened all the same day and the same time. He went into a house and he killed 19 people. So he asked the murderer, why did you kill the 19 people? And the murderer looked at him with a very straight face and sincereness and said to him, because they was home. They was home. It gets to a point sometimes society becomes so degradant, so decadent, and so degraded, and so nothing. Life means nothing. And another person gets killed, another busload of children, turn over on a highway or gets hit by, a, by trucks. Last week, two school buses were involved in an accident with two trucks on the highway. We don't know these things. Don't know the storage. It goes under the carpet. They were high school kids, don't worry about it. They were big boys. I don't know. I, I, I think there were like two dead and nine wounded, but who knows? Where was this? I don't know. Not here in New York. In cell, there was a car accident. One of the sons, seven people were killed. There was another car accident. This was another yesterday, two days ago. Another woman, a young woman, was killed. Casualties go by the wayside. When it comes to wartime, if the army based themselves in this area and the civilians stayed home and they knew that these bombs could fly here, they were a casualty of the war. Zakhtan Stateda, you may not lose your sensitivities. There is no such thing of saying the population of the Jewish nation has doubled, tripled, quadrupled, quintupled, whatever it might be, and therefore, if this Jew goes astray, Rahman no! One Jew down. One Jew not being religious. One Jew not being from. We don't, we may not, says the Rebbe. Look at it that way. Each and every Jew is a special, precious stone by the Abishtah. Each and every Jew is Yedeinu Leshofwes Adam We have to know we did not, God forbid, spill this blood. We did everything we can to help this person. I personally, Bidadi, have a little bit of a hang-up that when a situation comes to my court and I brought before me and all of a sudden I have to help somebody out of whatever predicament it might be, I can't let go of it until I actually see that I'm actually helping and it's very detrimental to my life and to my family and to everybody else in the world. But I, I just can't. I get very, very involved until I can actually see fruits from my, my labor. And this is something that a person, it, it could be a plus, a minus, a call, whatever it might be. 99% of the time in Yiddish, my grandmother would say, I don't know why you hate me so much. I never did a favor. Um, and ultimately, the price... Nobody pays you the price, you pay the price for every time you do a favor for somebody. There's nothing to talk about. But this, says the Teda, is the sensitivity that we have to develop the Egla Rufa, even in wartime. Where it's war in the beginning and war after, and we could say, ah, oh, this guy died, he died. He didn't have a job after the war, he didn't have a job before the war, whatever it might be, and therefore he died. Zoktan stated, no, we may not do that. We have to always remember, we cry out, the But the main lesson of Pasha Shaftim, as we said before, and the Rebbe says in Tavshin and Aleph, Yesh Novi Bi There is something we have to always remember and bear in mind, that there is a Novi in the Jewish nation. The prophet of the Jewish nation, and the Rebbe, obviously at the time, was referring to the Rebbe himself. And the Rebbe had many times talked about the Friedrich Rebbe as such. And therefore, we have the obligation of Tomim Tiyem Hashem Aleikecha. We know the other time that the word Tomim is used is Para Aduma Temimo. The Para Aduma has to be Temimo. 
the para aduma has to be completely red, and two white hairs makes it impure, makes it un untamim. This, however, is the obligation of the teres of the tmima tamim tia mashem lekecha. Even the white one blemish is not already considered a tamim. We have to see to it that we do our Torah mitzvahs to the perfection that we have to be tamim tia mashem lekecha with the shaftim v'shaytim, with the judges and the policemen that we put upon ourselves, and tax ourselves with another mitzvah and another mitzvah. And now in Chedesh El, as we go into the month of El, and we look at it, and we say to ourselves, there are many different Rashatevis of El, especially Lashem Vayemur Leymar Ashira, that we have to sing out, that we have to do it besimcha, and besimcha betuv levav, we will smile at Hashem, and God will smile back at us. Because the Abishta stands with Panim Tzechakis in Melech Basadeh and takes on everybody and doesn't say any, doesn't differentiate and say, no, you're too smart, you're too dumb, you're too ugly, you're too pretty. Everyone can come to the king in the field and the king takes everyone's requests. And a very interesting thing I heard last night, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yitzchak Varko was a little boy. He was orphaned at a very young age. And he was going with another tzaddik who raised him, I think it was, and he was a little boy, and he came to another Rebbe, and the Rebbe said to him, Nun, what are you learning, Yingola? So I'm learning Hilchas Eidus. Learning Hilchas Eidus, beautiful. That was a question, something that you, you came up with. He says, yes. It says in Hilchas Eidus that a relative cannot be considered a witness, neither for good, nor for bad. I understand for good. It's biased. My cousin, my brother, I'm not going to say something. I will always try to help him out. But for bad? Ellen says, no, that's a beautiful question. What answer do you have? Yitzchakel. The Helik Yitzchak Varka said, if a person can testify bad against his relative, he's not fit for a witness. And therefore, he says, oh, and the Rebbe actually, the, he, co- he had come into this Rebbe right before Tkir Shefer. And this Rebbe was refusing to go out to Tkir Shefer. He didn't know how he can stand by Tkir Shefer and tell the Ebishter, forgive your children. He kissed the Yitzchak Varka on the head and he says to my kind, you just saved Klal Yisrael. I can now go blow Shefer. You're our father. Madach, a relative is castigated for trying to say bad against the relative. The father should try to put bad about the children. So you must, says the, 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 the Sadiq, you must inscribe each and every one of the Jews in the good book, in the book of Teda, of Aveda, of Shaduchim, of Parnosa, of all the good things and all the good blessings. They should come easy, they should come happy. And this year they, they go into Chedeshal with a Ksiva, a Vachsima, Teva, a Shana, Teva, Masukha, Tiskulish, and Rabot. And as they start tomorrow, Serichot in the Sephardic communities, we should all Taka be forgiven, and we shouldn't feel that we even have to say Serichot.